Welcome to Slate's I Have to Ask. I'm Isaac Chotner. My guest today is Tom Cole, a Republican congressman from Oklahoma's 4th Congressional District, who has been serving in Congress since 2003. The 68-year-old Cole, a former chairman of the National Republican Congressional Committee, or NRCC, is also known on Capitol Hill as a political strategist. He worked as a consultant and pollster before being elected and is now the deputy whip in the House. He is also one of only two Native Americans currently serving in Congress, and he has criticized President Trump over proposed budget cuts to things like the National Institutes of Health and for Trump's unfounded claim that President Obama wiretapped him. But Cole has also voted with the president 100 percent of the time so far in this legislative session, and he has supported successive Obamacare repeal efforts. Congressman Cole joins me from Washington. Thank you for so much for coming on the program. Oh, hey, my privilege. Thanks for asking. Well, it's my pleasure. So I want to ask you to start off. There was a quote from one of your colleagues, um, Representative Sanford from South Carolina, just this afternoon. We're recording on a, on a Thursday afternoon. And uh, he was referring to the incident in Montana. And he said, quote, there is total weirdness out there. And he's sp- speaking of President Trump. He said he's unearthed some demons and people feel like if the president of the United States can say anything to anybody at any time, then I guess I can, too. And that is very, very dangerous phenomenon. What do you make of that quote and what we've been seeing the last 24 hours? Look, I think uh, I don't agree with that. Uh, You know, I think uh, you can be critical of the president without holding him responsible for something that somebody else did halfway around the world from where he happened to be at the time. So, uh, you know, I think there's a where I do agree is there's been a general coarsening of uh, in political life and political culture for a long, long time. And again, I don't think. uh, the president is particularly responsible for that. I think it's been happening uh, again for many years. I think people find it uh, harder and harder to find anything good in uh, people that they don't agree with uh, politically and uh, to express uh, uh, much respect. Uh, you know, again, thanking somebody that even though we don't agree on something, you have a legitimate point of view or uh, finding those areas that you can actually work together and emphasizing that. Uh, and so, again, I don't hold the president personally responsible for that. I think it's a much broader cultural phenomenon. Well, I think that everyone thinks that there's definitely been a coarsening of the political culture. I mean, just to just to keep on this for one second, do you do you think that attacks on the media calling them, you know, an enemy of the people like the president has done, things of that nature contribute to this coarsening? It's certainly not rhetoric that I would use. Uh, look, uh Free press is pretty indispensable to democracy. That's why we have a First Amendment. The founders recognized that from the very beginning of the republic. Uh, does that mean it's a perfect press? No. Does that mean there's not uh, uh, either errors or distortions or mistakes or prejudices based in from particular points of view? Sure. Uh, but the idea was over time, if you had free dialogue, that uh, people would sort out right from wrong, good from bad. Uh, you know, uh, so... I don't think it's helpful uh, when you criticize people for, you know, doing a perfectly legitimate function and one that really the very founders of the country thought was indispensable to the survival of democracy. So you you got into Congress in 2003, and that was already a pretty heated partisan time. Um, I guess, is there a change that you think you've seen since you've been on the Hill since that point? Oh, I think the polarization is uh, undoubtedly worse. And uh, I think it, you, you see that on political maps. I mean, when I got here, uh, Blue California had the largest Republican delegation at 24. Now it's 14. Uh, Connecticut, which is now all Democratic, had three of the five representatives that were Republican. Arkansas, that was 
heavily Democratic. Uh, three out of the four House members were Democrats. Both senators now, they're all Republicans. So you really see a regionalization and a partisanship that I think is higher and uh, uh, than it was the, even then. There were still lots of... Uh, Honestly, conservative Southerners, uh, Democrats around here now, I, you know, there's no real blue dogs. Well, there's a couple, but I mean, they're in danger of being extinction. And there were a lot of pretty moderate Northeastern type uh, Republicans. Again, uh, we've lost most of those as well. So, uh, again, I, I think, uh, you know, the red parts of America are redder and the, the blue parts of America are bluer. How do you think the Republican Party's changed since you got to Congress in 2003? Uh, well, it, first of all, it's larger. It's more diverse, uh, in some ways. And that's, that runs counter to counterintuitive, but it is. And, uh, it, uh, but it's also less cohesive. Leadership is a lot less powerful, a lot less influential. Uh, there's a lot more, uh, uh political uh, entrepreneurs out there. Uh, frankly, it's a much younger, less experienced, Congress. Uh, and there's a lot more people in the process now, uh, frankly, from left and right that had never been in what I'd call like the minor leagues of politics. Uh, uh, not as many former state legislators, local officials. A lot more people are showing up in Congress since the first uh, political position that they've ever held. Uh, and uh, that's fine. I mean, in some ways it brings perspective and it brings some energy, but, uh, you know, it's hard to build a championship team with rookies. And we got a lot of rookies around here in terms of how you govern and what are the kind of uh, uh, compromises, uh, both across the partisan line or even within your own conference that you have to make. And how does that, how does the, the relative freshness of people or inexperience or less time governing, how does that manifest itself in the daily business of running Congress? Well, first of all, a lot of people literally don't know the terms and the terminology, uh, how legislation works, what regular order really is. To be fair to them, they haven't seen it around here in a while. Uh, and uh, frankly, I fault both parties for that. It's not like Obamacare was passed under regular order. Uh, you know, I think the legislative, uh, the concentration of power in the speakership, which began with uh, uh, Gingrich and uh, really, uh, you know, frankly, uh, accelerated with uh, uh, with uh, Pelosi, uh, you know, things that uh, make it tougher. Too many of the leaders, in my view, pers- just a personal view, left or right, Republican or Democrat. Uh, once you're getting leadership, you quit going to committee meetings. You know, you sit around the leadership table all day. I've been there. Uh, and you mostly talk about how to beat the other side. And, uh, uh, you know, that's the view from leadership. Uh, and most of them want to accomplish their goals uh, with partisan-based majorities. They're not particularly interested in reaching out or establishing something that's bipartisan. So the culture of leadership on both sides, I think, tends to, to undermine the legislative process. Uh, you know, to uh, actually let the natural ties develop between individual members and across the aisle and have a situation where they work on things together instead of work on things in competition with one another. Well, just to just to go back to the ideological aspect of the Republican Party, I, I read an old quote from you where you decide, described yourself as a Burkean conservative. Um, would you say the GOP today is a Burkean conservative party? And additionally, no, no I would oh, not. All right. And, uh, yeah, you know, I think, uh, you know, I consider Burkean conservative. You believe in institutions, you believe in traditions, you believe in organic change. And, you know, that's why I love the appropriations committee. It actually comes closer to anybody else operating like that because in, in government and I think in society, Real change, real progress is usually incremental and cumulative. It doesn't come in some magic bolt of lightning. 
I know you've you voted for the different uh, Obamacare replacement bills, the two of mm-hmm. them that uh, or you supported them, the different bills and the one that the CBO scored yesterday or released its score of yesterday. I mean, do you think that that bill, the way it came together in the House and the way it was voted on, met the standards of good governance that you were talking about? I don't. Uh, it was too quick. There weren't enough hearings. Uh, there wasn't much opportunity for input. Uh, but I have to tell you, uh, Obamacare didn't meet the standards of good governance either. Uh, it was mostly written in the Speaker's office. It, you know, it never went back to the Senate the way it was supposed to because a Republican had been elected there. Uh, so, uh, again, I think, you know, every action has an equal and opposite reaction. I'm not pointing fingers as to where the chain uh, started, but uh, it's not new around here. Right. But let I mean, let's let's go back to healthcare just for one quick second before we move on, which is that mm-hmm. this is a bill that, it, you know, affects one sixth of the United States economy. And, you know, you voted for it and it, it made these changes in a bill that I think a lot of people didn't even understand what it was doing. I mean, are you going to leadership and you saying this has to be done a different way? I mean, wh- how do your well, complaints first of all, register? I understood what I was doing. I read the bill. I guarantee you most of my Democratic colleagues never read Obamacare, which <laughs> it was 10 times longer. Uh, so I've read the bill and in my state, and I vote in the context of my district in my state, uh, look, we're not a Medicaid expansion state and we have one provider left. That provider is losing money. We have a 69% rate hike. We take care, uh, just like everybody else does. If anybody shows up at the hospital, but because we're non-Medicaid expansion, uh, you know, uh, we're taking care of uh, patients that in 31 states you get compensation for 19, you don't. So the Republican bill is easily a better bill. The tax credits, more money for non-Medicaid expansion states for their hospital, and the chance to actually lure other providers back into the market make a lot of sense. What we have isn't working. So uh, it's not hard for me to defend the bill. And, uh, you know, I also always point out we seem to want to judge everything exactly where it is right now as if it's going to become law. This bill was a vehicle, in my view, to make sure that the Senate acted. And it wouldn't have acted if a bill hadn't moved across the floor. Now it has to act, and it's going to do something very different. Don't pretend to know what it'll do. And at that point, if it manages to get anything done, then we'll go to conference. Then this gets real. Then the negotiated product that comes out of a conference is a real bill. And it's a stand-up, can't-be-amended, you know, going to happen. So uh, I think to over-examine these things at this point or – uh, you know, we don't send stone tablets over to the United States Senate. They're allowed to erase those things and write what they want, and they will. But, I mean, do you believe that the bill that you said you read and voted for would, as the Congressional Budget Office said, lead to 23 million people? I gather no, not I many of them in your state. Uh, well, first of all, in, your state. I, I, in my state, no. And uh, you know, But they're still again, Americans who you're representing. Well, and, I know, but I, I represent the Americans elect me. I don't presume to speak for people that didn't vote for me and have never heard of me. I mean, that's pretty presumptuous. I obviously try and do what's in the best interest of the country, but my constituency is the 4th District, the state of Oklahoma. But in terms of, uh, uh, you know, your your basic question, uh, look, the current system, I start from the premise, which you may not share, that the current system's collapsing. You know, a lot of the exchanges are gone. Rate hikes are going up every place. The stuff's unaffordable. Uh, you know, and, uh, you know, all of a sudden, uh, because somebody's trying to do something new, it may not be better, may not be right, but there's no question that what we've got isn't working. And now Democrats will always say, well, you know, we want to help you fix it. Well, you know, they, they did, I haven't seen any proposals to quote unquote fix it coming out of the Democratic side. They've defended it. 
uh, you know, with every bullet they've got. And fair enough. I mean, they paid a big price for it. But, uh, you know, it's hard for me to look at that system and think it's it's good. Now, in terms of the basic question you asked about, do I believe the CBO score? Let me put it this way. CBO, uh, you know, said the Bush tax cuts would largely pay for themselves. Most people don't believe that they did. The CBO was off by 40% in estimating the cost of uh, Medicare Part D. And by the way, 40, it came in 40% less than they thought it was going to cost based on free market principles. So I think they're an important part of the, uh, you know, of the discussion. And uh, you, ought, you ought to do the best you can. But no, look, they're fallible. They're, they're very fallible. Um, let me just I don't I don't have a copy of the Constitution handy, which I know which you were scolding people for earlier. But um, when you it was interesting to me that you said that you represent your district rather than, as you say, the entire country I'm accountable I'm, to my district, accountable to your district. No, I mean, I was wondering how you think about that, because at one level you are obviously voted voted in or out of office by the voters of your district at another level. Uh, you know, in 2003, I'm sure you voted to authorize um, the Iraq war. You're voting to send people to war. No, I didn't vote. The Iraq war was authorized in October of 2002. OK, well, you have voted, I would imagine, to send Americans overseas or it, you could in the future. And I would imagine that when you do so, you're sending all Americans, not just Americans from your district. So I'm wondering how you think of those sort of twin responsibilities of taking care of your district versus also, you know, taking on responsibility for the citizens of the whole country your votes well, are affecting. I mean, obviously, I try to think of that. I mean, you know, I'm an American first. Uh, but and I, I think I have a legislative record to prove that. And frankly, I voted for almost every compromise when the majority of my party didn't with President Obama. I have a very good relationship with him. We worked together. I have five pictures of him in my office from legislation that we signed or worked together on over the years. So, uh, you know, I think I know how to put uh, the good of the country uh, first when it comes here. In this case, though, I mean, uh, I, you know, I'm not persuaded uh, that uh, this is a very good system. And uh, uh, I'm not persuaded that, uh, you know, we've been able to modify it in any meaningful way with democratic cooperation. So obviously, again, if you're in my situation and you look at your state and you see rates going up by 69% and you see you're down to a single provider and that provider's losing money. And I look just north in Iowa and I see where uh, their providers have pulled out. People in 94 of 99 counties no longer can buy this program, 16 counties in Tennessee. Uh, you have some urgency about acting. So, Again, you know, politics is a pretty imperfect process and, and usually generates a, a less than perfect products. But again, you try to move in the right direction over time. And I think, uh, you know, in my view, that's what I've tried to do. You criticize President Trump for speaking highly of Andrew Jackson. Um, I know that you're one of the two Native American members of Congress or members of Congress with Native American ancestry that's known. Is that is that correct? That's correct. So why did you criticize President Trump for invoking Andrew Jackson positively? Well, I'm not a big admirer of Andrew Jackson. Uh, look, my, he moved my great-great-grandfather when he was 14 years old, had to walk 800 miles to some place called Indian Territory from a place where his people had lived for 500 years to a place where they'd never been. You know, and, uh, In Europe, we'd call that ethnic cleansing. That's exactly what tribal removal out of the southeast was. 
and he was the engineer of that. Now, again, to be fair, you know, uh, Jackson is a great symbol of the Democratic Party. They have Jack Jefferson Jackson Day events all the time. So, uh, and I'm not going to tell you he wasn't, quote, a great president. He was certainly a consequential president, if, if that's how you want to define greatness. But uh, no, nah, I was not raised to be a big fan of his in any way. And, uh, you know, so... I'd much rather American presidents look at Lincoln or look at Washington, uh, you know, or look at some of the great presidents of the 20th century. We've had them on both sides of the aisle. Uh, but, you know, people are allowed to draw the lessons of history they want or be for whoever they want. So, uh, I did, I did not like I issued a press release criticizing the president. Somebody asked me what I thought of Andrew Jackson and the president, some remarks he had made, and I disagree with him. Uh, you know, I have a PhD in history, so it's something I know a little bit about. Uh, and, uh, you know, again, but there are plenty of historians. I remember, uh, uh, late, uh, uh, Dr. Remenick, uh, or Remini, excuse me, uh, who was historian of the house and a good friend of mine. And he once he, he was a, one of the foremost Jackson scholars of his era wrote, uh, uh, biographies of Jackson and Clay. And he brought me a book called Jackson's Indian Wars. And he said, Read the book. You're not going to agree with it, <laughs> but see if what you think. So again, people are allowed to to do that. And uh, but again, I was raised in a family where my grandmother wouldn't carry a twenty dollar bill. Uh, that's how strongly she felt about Andrew Jackson. So that had something to do with my views. There are there are people we know around the world now uh, in Syria and elsewhere who, like your ancestors, have been forced from where they live and are. Um, looking for a new place to call home and uh, have been very unsettled uh, for the last number of years. Have you taken a position on whether America should take in any refugees? Yeah, we certainly should take in refugees, but I think it's fair to make sure they're appropriately vetted. And it's difficult in places where governance don't exist anymore. I think that's a, and frankly, 99 times out of 100, they'll be perfectly fine. Uh, you know, they're, they're not, I mean, most people are legitimately fleeing for real reasons. Uh, but when you have an enemy that's as deadly as ISIS it's a, that tells you we're going to try and slip people into this mass of humanity, then you have a legitimate right to make sure we you exercise extra scrutiny. And and I mean, I know that when President Trump announced his first uh, so-called Muslim ban that you supported it. Um, oh, I did not support it. I violently criticized it. Really? I have a quote from you here. No, I did. I you, whatever you've got's wrong. I can show it to you on tape. Uh, OK, because, I, you know, I criticize the Muslim ban It's clearly unconstitutional. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the United States Constitution doesn't allow you to discriminate on the basis of religion ever. So now I don't know what you've got, but. It's oh, OK. The quote I have and tell me this is totally wrong is that it's fair and appropriate to debate the merits of President Trump's executive order, but it is inappropriate to engage in demagogic, inflammatory, inaccurate and reckless rhetoric that is designed to create and exploit a political issue rather than that address. Is absolutely correct quote, because the executive order wasn't the original announcement of a Muslim ban. Uh, and we had a lot of people saying the executive order was a Muslim ban when it wasn't. When it applies to six country and there's 41 majority Muslim countries, uh, you know, in the uh, in the world. Uh, and when it's a 90 day, you know, delay uh, while you put a new system into place, I thought the rhetoric was way over the top. Now, you know. Oh, so you, you did argue... support the ban from the six countries, though? Well, I yes, I did. I oh, mean, well, that's I think... what I was referring to. Well, you said the Muslim ban. You didn't say a ban from six countries. Sure, so, but a number of well, courts. Well, then you're being inaccurate in your question. 
Um, I, my statements at the time in the campaign were very clear on this. But yeah, you have every right. If we have a, you know, a meltdown in Syria, a country where we know there's considerable ISIS activity, when we've had examples in Europe to make sure that we have a thorough and appropriate vetting to take 90 days to make sure, yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. Now, again, if people want to debate it, fine. But that's not what the president, uh, you know, in my view, mistakenly and erroneously originally posed on the campaign trail. And that's when I spoke about it for the first time. I, I guess, you know, a number of courts, including a court today, had found that it was unconstitutional specifically because it did constitute what the president had talked about the cam- on the campaign trail as a Muslim ban. Well, uh, you know, we'll uh, see, you know, where we end up in the courts when we get a final decision. Uh, but uh, and, uh, you know, it's a surprise to me that you can go back and read something uh, somebody said and then he does something different. But because he said something previously. But again, I'll leave that to the lawyers. Uh, you know, again, my stance pretty clear. Religious bans are totally inappropriate. They're wrong. Uh, they're un-American. They're unconstitutional. They shouldn't be there. But making sure when you let and we're the most generous people in the world, you know, at this in terms of people coming in, that's good. Uh, but uh, making sure that you, know, you don't make a mistake, uh, you know, what what would it do if uh, somebody came in under one of those refugee status things and something and they did do something? You know, it would really be not just the act itself. It would put everybody under a cloud. So, again, uh, you know, I think having a vigorous debate over what the appropriate balance is, there's nothing wrong with that. And I don't mind, you know, the courts intervening. Uh, you know, I respect that. Uh, that's what they're there for is. Well, uh, as right. A check. I. I know. I hope that you as a member of Congress, that if if something horrible did happen and it did place, as you say, everyone under a cloud, that you would you would also speak out against everyone being unfairly put under a cloud. Look, I'm a guy that talked Governor Keating or not talked him into it because he did it very easily after the Oklahoma City bombing. I was his principal political advisor. Let's go to a mosque because it was a thing everybody assumed. This is pre 9-11. And one of the first things he did was do that. Uh, one of the first things that uh, George W. Bush was doing exactly the same thing, you know, after 9-11. So you know, do you think President Trump would do the same thing today? I don't know if he would or not. I don't speculate on what people, you know, might or might not do. And I don't know him that well. But if something like that happened, I would hope he would. Uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's just simply the right thing. And, uh, you know, last thing we need is this thing like, of all people, FDR rounding up 140,000 people, you know, over, over half of whom were American citizens and putting them in intern champs. So, you know, it's not like these things don't happen. And actually the country is a better country than it was, uh, in that sense. It's moved broadly in the right direction. So I don't think uh, there's a danger of that, but when it's happened within living memory and it has, then I don't blame people for being sensitive about it either. Last question for you. Um, I know that Jason Chaffetz, one of your colleagues, has now gone or is planning to go to Fox News. And there's been a lot written, I think, with um, changes at Fox News, the death of Roger Ailes, about the effect that Fox News and conservative media has had on the Republican Party. What effect do you think um, Fox News and conservative media more broadly have on the Republican Party and Republican Party legislators? It depends. You know, I I don't see much different uh, effect than MSNBC or, you know, has had on the Democratic Party. I mean, yeah, I mean, you can now. Uh, you know, if you so choose, go to a single network uh, and take a look at, uh, you know, news that con- is basically uh, uh, shaped uh, with your ideological lens in mind. That's unfortunate. 
but that's, uh, you know, I don't think Fox is unique in that. Frankly, they found a, a market that a lot of other people weren't serving, so to speak. There was a sort of, uh, you know, a, a group think in the media. There's clearly not part of that. But I don't, again, I don't find them much different uh, than uh, I do, you know, their counterparts on the left. There's plenty of them. But you don't think it makes your job easier by making your base voters? The fragmentation of America has made every politician's job harder. I, you know, I think I don't think it's any. Look, I've watched Democratic members. I'll give you an example, and this is my personal opinion. Do things that that they're smart politicians know are politically stupid because their base is demanding that they do them. I mean, the, the Gorsuch not giving Gorsuch sixty votes and then voting against him, I think, was really a dumb thing to do politically. Most Democrats in the Senate would tell you that. Uh, but, uh, there were too many, their own base was too riled up. And in this case, uh, I've seen this happen, by the way, on my side too. I'm not, this isn't uniform. Our, our guys had a hard time sitting down and compromising with Barack Obama because you didn't get anything when you compromised except a blow load of hate mail and a lot of people trying to beat you up because you were weak need. And I think that's happening to, uh, you know, Democrats right now. They're going through exactly the same thing. So it's the fragmentation and the polarization of the country. And there's a lot of different, uh, reasons for that that I think makes political compromise uh, and cooperation extraordinarily difficult right now. Congressman Cole, thank you so much for joining me. I'm glad sure. we could uh, get through this without a body slamming. <laughs> well, is that the reason why we did this uh, by phone, that you wanted to keep your distance? You were worried? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Safety first here. Safety first. <laughs> well, if you saw me, you wouldn't be too frightened of me. So uh, anyway, you're always welcome uh, and uh, love to have you come by sometime. All right. Thank you so much. All right. Take care. And that's our show for today. I Have to Ask is produced by Audrey Dilling with help today from Verilyn Williams and Afim Shapiro. Our theme music was composed by Doug Chase. To make sure you never miss an episode, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And also take a few moments to rate and review the show. And I'd love to hear from you as well. If you have an idea for a guest or just want to let me know your thoughts, please email me at ask at slate.com. That's A-S-K at slate.com.